<laughs> we reform, you know, and we get to wait it eventually. So. <laughs> hello, 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 and welcome back to Center Ed Teaching. Um, today we have a fun and nitty-gritty topic that may have already resulted in a brawl prior to the recording of this <laughs> podcast. Um, not naming names, but Brian and I are sitting far away from each other currently. Um, so to talk about grading in the class... <laughs> so to talk about grading uh, in the classroom today, I'm joined by Brian... Hey, y'all. And for the first time, we have the pleasure of having Denise Daniels with us. Hey. Um, so, Denise, since this is your first time on the podcast, do you mm-hmm. mind just taking a minute or two and letting our listeners know a little bit about your history in education and what you do at CPET? I have been in education for, seems like, forever. Um, I started off as a classroom teacher, and then I transitioned into a literacy coach. Um, yeah. Staff developer, literacy coach, um, test coordinator, you name it. I had it for briefly at some time at the DOE. Um, And then I went to private school. And then I went back to the classroom because I thought, you know, the students miss me. And then um, I decided that, nope, I was helping more people by coaching. And then I came on board um, CPET as a SPI uh, coordinator and did a project with students who had um, newly come to the country and they talked about their stories, some oral history narratives that were just moving, changed the way I, believe, I think about um, students and making public their, their lives and their stories. And now I currently coach um, and partner with schools um, around next level work. You know, what does it mean to modernize practice? What does it mean to think about um, developing kind of the staff you have around you so that they can be as effective as possible. So, glad to be here. Yeah. And if I could add, selfishly, uh, Denise has just uh, agreed to join me in our work with the New Teacher Network here yes. at Teacher's College. So, love, love supporting that. new teachers. Yeah, no, and I'm really glad you're here for this conversation because I think, one, your love for students, but also your willingness to grapple with the realities of schools is going to be... <laughs> Really insightful. That's cool, man. Uh, I'm picking. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Sub, sub, sub tweeting at me already. Huh? That's cool. Oh god. Um, <laughs> so to start off this conversation, um, well, I guess before we even get to that, we want to outline this conversation. We want to talk about what grades are, kind of how we think about them. Like, what do grades actually do to students, to schools, for teachers? Um, and then kind of thinking about how should we should think about grading going forward. Important. So to do that, um, I just want to ask you, Brian and Denise, like, what are your conception of grades? To you, what do they indicate? What is their purpose? Um, I think grades, the main purpose of grades uh, for students is that they are a, a credential. They're essentially um, a, a the school or the teacher is vouching for the student to say, this student has a qualification. What that qualification is depends, and the credibility of that qualification depends, but ultimately it's saying, I'm saying this teacher, or as a teacher or as a school, I'm saying this student can do that thing or has done that thing. Um, and then, you know, as they go forward with these uh, uh, these credentials on their permanent record, um, they can use them to hopefully access opportunities down the road. Interesting that you say that, Brian, because um, when I was a new teacher, I used to think that 
um, grades were about, um, you know, did this student do what I asked them to do? And how closely did they get to that? And then it turned into, well, I'm working with students that can't do this stuff anyway, so how hard are they working for me? So then I started to grade for effort. And I recognized quickly that it's got to be a balance of both, right? Because mm -hmm. students need to understand how they're doing, but not just in terms of getting closer to a goal, but they need to know how they're doing in terms of their effort toward getting toward mm -hmm. that goal. And so um, eventually my grading system wound up encapsulating both so that the students understood that I'm getting closer to this particular measure, standard, assignment, but then ultimately how effective was I in getting me there, that was also part of the process. So that students could make choices in the future about how they wanted to go about doing a similar project at the next level. Yeah, I, I think for me, um, not completely different, but a slightly different view. Um, and if you want my full philosophy of grading, you can check out our NTN blog, um, where nice I have a post about plug. this. <laughs> um, but for me, I, I think grades are an attempt to capture students' achievement and their growth, not necessarily um, just one or the other, but, but both. And so my grades for me, at least how I internalize it, is I take the standards and I work back from there and, okay, this is what my students need to be able to do, so how am I going to assess them um, on their ability to get to that level? How can I create a grading system that their hard work and their growth is rewarded, but also holding them accountable for being able to do what is expected for them? Um, and so I guess realistically, like more broadly speaking, my view of grading is an opportunity or grading for me is an opportunity to give students a chance to prove their capabilities, um, whether that's an effort or an achievement. Um, and so we want to move from there a little bit, I think, to talk about a huge debate in grading right now, um, especially on the national level with standardized tests whether um, we should look at a growth model or a proficiency model. So, Denise, can you kind of speak to what a growth model is, uh, what are some positives to it, and what are some drawbacks? So a growth model really um, looks at that a student needs to move from here to here. And when you're grading, you're looking at how closely is that student moving. Mm -hmm. And the challenge, well, the, the great thing about that is that students can clearly see that their effort is appreciated. Mm -hmm. And because sometimes that because you, you get caught in the, in the weeds with some students because they're like, but you, you didn't see that I tried or mm -hmm. you didn't see that I did this. And so then you'll get some things that are uh, almost um, moving the student backwards. So the great thing is you're acknowledging um, the, the fact that they are growing or making efforts to get, you know, to where we kind of both mutually agreed we need to go. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges, the biggest challenges that I see with that is that because growth is so incremental, mm -hmm. it can often look like to someone who's out particularly for um, an administrator when they step in, it looks like sometimes the students are standing still when in fact they are still moving. Mm. Um, and so the biggest um, challenge is um, uh, making sure that the growth is visible and that there's clear, um, I hate to use the word tracking, but there's yeah. like we're, we're capturing the evidence that's mm -hmm. showing that, right? That's mm -hmm. showing their movement and making sure that the students can speak to it as well. Because I can only celebrate, you know, what, we've, what mm -hmm. we have acknowledged. And if a student can't speak to it, a student can't then own it and then continue to move, uh, make those uh, forward, often incremental movements yeah. forward. Um, yeah, I think a point that you touched on there, which um, we'll hit a little bit later in the podcast, is that you have to be able to articulate what that growth is and have that evidence. But you, that means you have to have a measure, right? So you have to have some validity. 
um, behind that. Brian, can you maybe speak to this proficiency mindset, what that means, what that looks like, um, and the positives and the drawbacks to that model? Mm-hmm. The proficiency model, and my take on it, is um, has to do with standards. So if we say describe a set of standards, uh, by the end of ninth grade, students will be able to X, Y, and Z. Um, what I'm going to do is compare a student's, well, not compare. I'm going to measure a student's proficiency at that skill. All right. So if they master that skill, then you know they get an A or 100 mm-hmm. percent or whatever. Um, if they have, if they are uh, proficient but have room for growth, then B and so on. Um, and this gets into a um, a sort of a, a, a tricky sort of place um, because um, it it does not take into account the idea that all students don't necessarily enter the class at the same uh, level of proficiency. And so um, a student who has already um, mastered a particular skill um, will earn top marks for for that um, in the class, Um, even if they don't add anything, even Mm. if they don't improve or grow in any Mm -hmm. way. Um, Meanwhile, a student who enters with very, very low proficiency with a particular skill, um, even if they move a little bit, which would be significant for them, right. let's say they're at 10% proficiency and they make it up to 25%, mm-hmm. well, 25% is still a failing percentage in most grading systems, um, even though they've more than doubled their proficiency level. So it's a, um, it's holding students' um, performance, or comparing a student's performance and proficiency against a standard. Um, and this uh, is kind of a cousin of what is called a criterion referenced um, grading. That's to say the criterion I'm holding students against is their proficiency at this particular skill. Um, and that starts to get into this, sort of the, for me, the uh, positive of it um, is that we're not comparing student to student here. We're comparing mm-hmm. student against standard. Um, and then the drawback of that, though, is what I just described, which is um, it doesn't reward growth. It doesn't reward um, uh, the, those those students who are less proficient, who are able to make huge leaps forward, but still not necessarily get up to that standard that has been set. Yeah, no, I I think that's really insightful, um, especially when you talk about this idea of kind of avoiding the bell curve in your grading and thinking, because a lot of scholarship has proven that that's not really an appropriate way to think about uh, students' grades and students' learning. Mm -hmm. Um, The last point that I want to touch on is... A lot of teachers, when they go to make their grade book, they think about, do I want a point system or do I want a weighted system? And there are benefits to each and there are cons to each. Um, Denise, do you maybe want to speak to the points system? Yeah. (laughs) Here's a system that I thought was really, really super smart. So my theory was that if students understood the value of each part of the class, meaning if they understood the, the, the value of classwork and each homework has a value, they would be more likely to not only participate, but actually complete it. So what often happened for me, though, is that at the beginning of the year, in my mind, I was only going to have 20 homework assignments. Mm-hmm. Well, when I went to go do grades, I had 38. And so I, so I just added them up, right? Because I just kept adding things up. And so eventually what I had was a random number that I then had to think about like, oh, these, everyone had a different number. And then I was like, well, woo, okay, well, wait a minute. If this is one number and this is like, how do I translate these random numbers into a set of numbers that could be understood and handed in as grades? So what wound up happening is I had to turn around and reverse engineer um, a range. So like 
if you got, um, you know, 1700 to 1760, that was an A. And mm-hmm. then I went down in chunks. And then, of course, the largest chunk was, you know, a C minus because I really didn't want to give anyone a D. But the problem with that became um, because it was um, random and because I was trying so hard to add value to everything, I didn't really think about um, making it as fair as possible. So someone who did everything they were supposed to do, mm-hmm. they kind of seemed like they had the same grade as someone who didn't do as much effort mm-hmm. up front but maybe did a couple of extra credit assignments. Then they seemed to have the same grade. And so I definitely... Um, learned from that and didn't use the point system often um i confess to using it more than once i will say that uh but it was and it was also harder for the students to figure out like okay if all of these things have points how do i decide hey you know i really need an a in my average or i really need a b in my average to do this or to apply for this how do i figure that out so um Sorry to all my students. Miss <laughs> Daniels loves you with all her heart. And I have since reformed. Uh, so that was me and my uh, endeavor into a point system. For those of you that are wondering why Denise is being so defensive <laughs> about this, this may have something to do with the pre-recording um, when we got into a heated discussion. But I think even in your self-critique, you bring up um, why a lot of teachers opt for a point system is that it can provide clarity to students on the front end. Because if I say to a student, your homework assignment is always worth 10 points, your tests are always worth 100 points, your essays are always worth 50 points, there is consistency in that regard that a student does know that, okay, homework is less than an essay, but an essay is less than a test. And so they can rationalize their grades that way. It becomes harder, maybe, I think, from what you're saying on the back end um, to really handle that. So the weighted system, right, is that you determine um, what percentage particular assignments um, are accounted for uh, throughout the course of the year. So you might have homework as one category, um, your major assessments, your labs, your essays, your tests uh, as another category, uh, class participation as another category, uh, and then your final as another category. And you can determine those how you see fit, whether you want to weigh the final assignment heavier or if you want that at a cushy 10 to 15% so it could help a student's grade but not necessarily hurt it. Those are some things to think through. And and what's really positive about a a weighted system is that it allows students to grow Mm -hmm. as the years, or excuse me, as the semester goes on because if you're in a point system, you're just adding points to that fraction. As that fraction gets bigger, it's harder to move the pendulum, right, for a student's grade to improve that grade, um, although it can be easy for that student's grade to be hurt. Whereas if a weighted system, because you have those assignments broken down in those categories, there's fewer assignments, so they weigh heavier within the category, so it's more representative of that student's work, and then that portion of the student's work calculates in the final grade. The drawback, I think, with this is determining what do you set your percentages at? What is best for students that aligns with your philosophy of grading, whether it's about growth, whether it's about proficiency or some combination of the two? Um, Can I just say one more thing yeah. that I'm recognizing in this inside of this reflection is that the weighted system more similarly aligns with some of the, the higher ed academic Mm -hmm. things so the sooner students get used to that kind of understanding the easier it would be for them to make their disorder their choices once they hit college Mm. um because it's 
it, it, I remember it being a transition to a few of the students that came back and spoke to me yeah. afterward because of the point system versus the weighted system versus if they had had a w- experience with a weighted system um, earlier, mm-hmm. then they were better able to de- make some decisions, some academic decisions. So I'm just, again, Miss Daniel <laughs> says, sorry. <laughs> no, that's, that's really helpful. Um, so we've kind of talked about what grading is, the, the current conversation around grading. Um, but I guess, like, so what do we make of this? Why should teachers spend time thinking about their grade books? And Brian, you have a, a devilish grin under <laughs> your hand that I can see. Can you, can you speak to this? Yeah. Um, so in general, I'm a big fan uh, that, uh, of the idea that practice should be intention. Right? Teachers should, again, in my estimation, um, be able to articulate for themselves a philosophy of schooling that then informs all of their practice mm-hmm. from it. And grading policy is no different. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, grades have consequences for the students. And um, if teachers are unintentional in establishing their grading policies and procedures, mm-hmm. then they can end up hurting their students by assigning or by assigning grades to their performance that just can just muck things up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give you like a really quick example. Um, I was a, a TA for a professor once um, and the professor set up his grading system such that you know weekly journal entries were worth 50% of the grade, midterm was worth 25% of the grade, finals worth 25% of the grade. One of my students didn't turn in the midterm and he ended up failing the class. And the teacher was concerned, or the professor was concerned about this because he said, this kid wrote a really good final, why is he failing the class? I'm like, well, for starters, he didn't turn in the midterm, so the highest grade he could earn was 75%. Mm-hmm. So he's at a C from the start, and then because of these journals that he didn't turn in and blah, blah, blah. And so I just did the math, and that professor hadn't thought through the consequences mm-hmm. of his grading policy before he established it. And then because he put that policy on the class, a large class, several mm-hmm. hundred students, then this one kid who, for whatever reason, didn't turn in the midterm but wrote a brilliant final mm-hmm. was already hamstrung. So the choices a teacher make has consequences, and that's why I think it's very, very important for teachers to go about setting their grading policy very thoughtfully. Um, so, Denise, I know you have some thoughts on this, but before we get that get there, I want to pause on some of the things that you said yeah. for a second, Brian. Um and I think one of the questions it sounds like the professor had is, like, what proved mastery in his class? Correct. Mm. And it sounded like, to him, the final proved mastery. Right. But because of the way that the grade book was set up, the end grades do not reflect that. Absolutely. I think the other thing to think about is, what were the actual consequences for that student? Mm-hmm. Presumably, that student failed the class, mm-hmm. had to retake the class, mm-hmm. which may have cost money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And which may have cost, <laughs> cost a, a couple lot. thousand, <laughs> a few thousand dollars. Uh, may have harmed his his identity as a student because maybe he's doing really well and this doesn't align with um, his identity and works against that. And so I just I want to pause there for some of these real consequences Absolutely. from that example that you gave us. Um, but Denise, I know you have some more thoughts on this, can, so you can chime in. It's it's really important that you mention the student's identity because mm-hmm. the reality is is many times students make choices based on these grades, mm. and so oftentimes they'll 
it, it impacts how they show up in the class, mm-hmm. how they participate, um, how they bounce back. Because mm-hmm. most students expect their first grade to be in a particular window, right? Because they mm-hmm. don't know the expectations, how hard, right? And mm-hmm. air quotes, you can't, you can't hear the air quotes, so I'm air quoting. <laughs> um, but that often determines how much effort they put into their second um, assignment. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting that like grades matter to students inside of the class in like these intangible ways, particularly about um, sometimes they're even determining how they, the, the order of importance of certain classes, right? Because of, you know, maybe this might be going according to what they're th- perceiving, but their grades were not, they weren't expecting those grades. Mm. So then ma- now that class might be third in their level of importance. Mm. And so it, we have to be very mindful of like our grades have these like, like apparent and then like invisible consequences. Yeah. Um, speaking to that, you're talking about the way students kind of uh, view particular classes based on their grade. And Brian, I know you have some thoughts about this in terms of the variability between how teachers grade within a grade level in a school. And so the impact that that can have on students. Can you maybe speak to that a little bit? Sure. Um, let's say Denise and I are both teaching ninth grade English. Um, and I have a reputation as the easy grader. Denise has the reputation as the hard grader. Mm. Right. If Two students submit the same essay, um, but uh, you know I give it an A, Denise gives it a C. Mm-hmm. We have an unjust system that mm-hmm. is set up right mm-hmm. there. So um, this notion that is, uh, or this idea that is sometimes called norming, sometimes called moderation, where uh, teachers go through a process to make sure that work of a certain quality is uh, deemed to have earned a certain grade. Right. Right, and um, this sort of work is uh, always done when teachers are uh, grading standardized tests, mm-hmm. um, and we could argue that um, uh, all assessment tasks are, in some way, standardized. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it seems to me that within a school, there needs to be some agreement um, among teachers when work is of a certain quality, it earns a certain grade. Um, but that's often not the case and and we know that teachers very quickly uh, get reputations as easy graders hard graders Mm -hmm. Um, and you can imagine well you don't even have to imagine I'm sure you did it um, teachers want to get in that easy grading class if if I can also clarify this is separate and apart from having a standardized grading policy absolutely Mm -hmm. this is separate this is teacher to teacher on a grade band or in a similar subject so students understand that this effort this assignment, this work, gets this grade mm-hmm. versus, oh, well, in this class, homework is worth 50% of the grade, mm-hmm. but in another class, homework is worth 5%. That's not what we're talking about because it's important to, that, that you made mention that it's, it's part of the training and the, the, you know, laying the groundwork for any kind of scoring of any standardized test mm-hmm. where we norm so that everyone at the table understands that this is a blank level work or this mm-hmm. is a, you know, so there, you don't have that much disparity in the grading. Mm-hmm. And, but it's so interesting that it's not the common practice to have teachers on the same grade band or teachers in the similar content areas have that conversation such that they understand that this essay, that's what, this is what a B essay looks like or this is what an A essay looks like. And then we're just really allowing ourselves to fall into the easy grader or the hard grader um, like persona. Yeah, and if I can push back on that slightly and build from that, I mean, I think part of the reason that's not the common practice is teachers often don't get enough time to oh, have yeah. these oh, yeah. norming meetings and do things like this. Facts. 
But that said, I think what we're, you two have already so beautifully articulated in this conversation, like this is why teachers, even if it's outside the school hours, have to think about their grading because it has so, so much impact um, upon students' school lives and then their lives beyond school. Um, Before we move on to kind of the next section, I just also want to build on the way that your grades impact students. Uh, many schools track within schools. Mm-hmm. So the grades that you give students determine what track they're in. And often that track determines um, what colleges are accessible, what careers are accessible. Um, and this is me kind of in a humanistic way. What ideas hmm. are accessible? Yeah. Are they getting a curriculum that's probing them to think about things in new ways? Or are they getting uh, quote unquote remedial classes? Mm-hmm. Um and so if there's not intentionality behind that grading, if there's not validity behind that grading, you risk putting a student in a track that can set them up for the life that is below them and below what they deserve. Um, and the going along with that, I think the other thing is about schools have students that they do interventions and responses with. And often these interventions and responses are done to students not with students, Mm -hmm. and by what their GPA is, which you have a role in determining, um, those interventions take place. And sometimes they're incredibly helpful, but sometimes, as we talked about earlier, they can really hurt a student's identity in this idea that, oh, I'm not a smart kid, or, oh, I'm not good at math, when that's not the case. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And so that's just kind of like the final plug for thinking about the way your grades impact students. But I think we should also say, because it's kind of implicit in this conversation, is the way you grade students actually has a significant impact on you Mm -hmm. and the way students view you, the way families view you, the way your administration views you. So Brian, can you maybe talk about the teacher credibility that goes hand in hand with quality grading? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, Well, for starters, that, that notion of the easy grader, hard grader, you know, starts at the student level. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, you know, student to student, that'll mean different things. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I remember in, in high school, I had a particularly um, hard grader uh, math teacher, but for me, that made him actually more credible mm-hmm. because I knew he wanted, he held me to an extremely high standard. And then if I didn't put in my best work, or my best effort, then I was not going to earn a, a good grade, and I wanted that mm-hmm. out of a teacher um, uh, at that point. Um, <laughs> but uh, so there's credibility at the at the student level. Then it comes to the the family level. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, unexpected news is always problematic for for families to mm-hmm. hear, yes. and especially when it comes to grading. If at some point along the way, um, you, you know, halfway through a semester, parents learn that uh, their kid has a C, mm-hmm. um, you may have a moment where you have some justifiable um, outrage, or if I could walk it back a little bit, justifiable curiosity about, mm-hmm. oh, can you let me know what it is that my student has done or hasn't done in order to earn this C? And if as a teacher you haven't been intentional about setting the criteria and collecting the data, then all of a sudden you're not credible to the parents because it seems as if the grade were arbitrarily assigned. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing happens at the, uh, the level of school administration. right? If you can't offer some evidence to justify your evaluation of the student, 
in the form of a grade, mm-hmm. then um, your credibility as a professional is just uh, takes a takes a ding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we're having this conversation, and we're talking about grading, and this kind of assumes that grading is a fact of life, and so now. I'm sitting back here trying to be philosophical about things. Mm -hmm. Why do we have grading? I I don't know. Denise, do you have any thoughts on this? I mean, the intention around grading is obviously to see where students are, right? And so there has to be a way of measuring that. So oftentimes you'll have scholarship reports where you're checking in from from outside the classroom, what's going on inside the classroom. But also students want to know how they're doing. They cry and complain, but they want to know. Um, It also is a way for them to see where they are in terms of getting into college. And it also is very important to think about this is information for teachers as well. Because I've done this lesson and it's beautiful because I planned it and I put a lot of hard work into it. So let's be very clear about that. But then what what are the students getting from it? Mm. And how are they representing whatever it is that they got back from that? Because that data I need to use to then determine how I move forward as a teacher. So there's a lot of reasons to have grading. I can't wait for the rest because I've got (laughs) a lot more to say about grading. But that's why we have grading. Brian, do you have any similar different thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I circle back around to what I opened with this notion of credibility, or excuse me, credentials, that um, uh, if a, a teacher or a school sends a student out into the world um, with, a, with a grade, um, that teacher or that school is uh, vouching for that student's either, if we're saying that we're, we're doing um, uh, uh, proficiency-based uh, grading, saying this student has this level of proficiency in that skill, mm-hmm. right? So go for it. You can hire this person or admit this person into a university or, or mm-hmm. whatever. If we're using the growth model to say, this student has, over the course of our time, their, their, their time with us, improved this much in their proficiency, and what that tells you as a, a, a admissions officer or a hiring director, that's up to you, but I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you some accurate representation of the growth this student has had or the level of proficiency this student has. So um, in a way, it's very, uh, it's, it's portable, um, and um, a, a, a student graduating or, or leaving a, a certain um, class or, or school can then reasonably represent themselves to a potential uh, uh, employee, employer or admissions director and say, here are my credentials. Admit me. Yeah. I, well, so now I, I'm thinking about this history of grading in uh, post-secondary institutions because, you know, when places like Harvard were founded, grading actually wasn't necessarily a thing, right? Mm. Um, the way that they divided students early on in Harvard was literally by class. And I don't mean, like, the classes you were in. I mean your social class. Mm. Um, and then later on in the 19th century, you had this development where uh, grades weren't assigned, but you would have schools that assigned pass-fail to a class. And that was all it was. And then a few decades later, you had schools like the University of Michigan um, that would have three levels. So there would be pass, something in between, and fail. Or pass, fail, and pass with distinction. Um, And then I think it's roughly like 1875, Harvard adopts these divisions where division one is a 95 to 100. 
Division two is 89 to 94, and so on and so forth. And so to me, this gets that this credential idea that you're talking about, Brian, the idea that grades have been used to stratify or strat, stratify, not stratify, stratify um, students in terms of their learning and what they have achieved and what they can prove. And I, I don't know, I say that to say, on the one hand, that's incredibly problematic, right? That you're creating these own divisions within your classroom. But there is also this other side of it where if a student is doing significantly more work and has demonstrated um, higher capability, well, I don't know, it's still, it's rubbing me the wrong way. Sure. I think I'm going to have to cut that out because I'm not undecided if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I, I, think, I think that's exactly what we're talking about here. Right. Though, like making these decisions about whether we want to uh, uh, proficiency grade or growth grade, like the jury's out. Right, like this is a these are questions that teachers need to wrestle with or schools need to wrestle with, um, uh, depending on how much autonomy they give the teacher. But how do you set your grading policy should be informed by your philosophy of education, and that's the that's the tricky bit. And you need to be able to back it up, right? Whatever it is you do believe, you need to be able to um, justify it and it sit with you, right? As mm-hmm. as inside of your persona. But then also, too, this is not to kind of make you feel like, oh, my goodness, this is so profound. I must inflate my grades because mm-hmm. then every every student deserves it. It's like, no, it has to be an accurate representation as far as you can make it right inside of your policy. Does that make sense? Because I don't want yeah. there to be this kind of false under this false kind of like because, yes, this is a call to action to kind of be mindful and deliberate, but it's not to then make you go so far against whatever mm. you believe to then overinflate on the other side, right? To swing yeah. the pendulum so far on the other side that you're like now, like they showed him in class, that's a hundred for the deck. No, no, yeah. no, no. That's I mean, that anyway, that's, I just don't want that to then be the other side of it. So. Yeah. I think that ties really back to the point of like intentionality mm-hmm. in your grading. Like if you have this to stand on, it's a lot easier to wrestle with these questions yes. than if it's a grade in the abstract. Um, but speaking of like grading, grading doesn't just impact students and impact um, you and the perception of your teaching, but it also impacts the way that you end up teaching your class and kind of the rest of your practice. Um, Denise, working with teachers, what are some ways that you have found that grading kind of shapes practice? It's super important inside of the teacher-administrator practice um, relationship because you definitely want to make sure that you're as we've been saying, I'm deliberate Mm -hmm. about how you're grading because that determines how you say reteach or how Mm -hmm. you um, group. Intentional grouping is another big, big, big phrase for administrators. They always want to know why are the students sitting next to each other? Um, Why are they turning and talking to that particular partner? And if your grading is arbitrary, it's hard to then turn around and say, oh, well, they're working on similar things. Well, how do you know? Right. And so um, that's super important. And then it helps the administrator kind of really remember that you are the professional in the room rather than coming in as this like micromanaging manager. They're able to better 
respect your professionalism and your your tracking you're keeping track of the data such that you're making these deliberate instructional choices yeah i don't want to cut you off right there but i think that that's like a point to hone in on if you're listening to this especially with teacher evaluation season upon us big time big oh, time sorry, because you definitely want to make sure that the administrators recognize you as the professional in the room mm-hmm. because sometimes you have um, administrators who for whatever reason are blanketing um, are, are looking at new teachers in a blanket um, frame and so they'll just go in and just feel like they need to micromanage without recognizing that you've got this like they, yeah. you, you made your choices um, the other space in which um, it impacts the, the choices you make instructionally is inside the, the parent the teacher parent relationship mm-hmm. because you always want to um, help the parents understand that you are making your choices with the students in mind and so that's not arbitrary it's not oh I don't like them that's why I gave them extra mm-hmm. homework that's not it but that you're making these choices because the the data or the, the what their students are able to demonstrate back to you is showing this and so these are the some of the things that I'm giving back to you because you know parents they're they're the first advocates for the students and they'll come in and they'll say but I don't understand my child has never gotten a B in their life well they got one today and this is why. <laughs> and so it's, you know, and that's important, right? Or the reverse, right? A parent who said, my child has never gotten a B. How are they getting a B in your class and nowhere else? Mm-hmm. Let's sit down and talk about that, yeah. you know? And that's sometimes where you get the magic. Because mm-hmm. then you have the parent on your side and then you have the student, like, transfer. If I start crying, I'm sorry because I'm thinking of a particular student. Um, but um, it's really amazing when the parents trust you just as much as the students, right? Yeah. And because they've built that trusting relationship with you, um, separate from the students, right? They recognize, like, you are in this for a reason and you chose this job and you're doing this as professionally as you can. And the grade book is a real big part of that. Yeah, I mean, something I want to add on to that is that I think your grading influences your practice in subtle ways Mm. that you don't really think about. So if I have a growth classroom set up as opposed to a proficiency classroom or proficiency classroom, the way that I scaffold instruction may change because what's my goal? Is my goal to see a student move by two points wherever that two points is? Or is it to put enough scaffolds to get a student to be quote unquote proficient? And you might say on the surface that, well, no, there should be differentiation across. There should be the same goal across. But if your real goal is growth over proficiency, there is a divide there, right? That's why there's a a current debate about it on a national scale. Um, And I think also when you have your grading aligned with growth or proficiency or, or whatever model you're thinking of, what you determine as quality work and what you determine as quality work over the course of a semester might change. Um, if you're interested in growth, you might use the same rubric at the beginning um, of the year as you do at the end of the year so that you have that metric to show growth. Whereas if you're working towards proficiency to a particular standard, you might have um, greater variation in your rubrics that hone in Um, on particular skills or particular lifts that you're trying to get with students, whether it's a lab um, or whether it's an essay. Um, And then I think kind of the most subtle way and the most harmful that often works for teachers is the idea of the bell curve is so entrenched in teachers' minds. So you'll look at your grade book and maybe there's way too many Bs or As than you're used to. And so you feel uncomfortable about that. And so the metrics that you're using for your grading changes because you should have this even distribution of grades. Um, 
And I think there's plenty of literature that has shown that that's not the correct way to think about student learning. Mm -hmm. But it's so ingrained in us from when we were kids that we kind of revert back to that. Um, Something I like to say to teachers, just think about, well, if you're doing a really good job, wouldn't all students be getting an A or B? Because your goal is to teach and their job is to learn. Um, I don't know. That was kind of a long ramble. Mm -hmm. But do you have any thoughts on that, Brian? Yeah, I do. This is actually kind of a... Not necessarily about instruction, but it's a thing that comes up all the time with my teachers, so I want to bring it up right now, which is, do you accept late work? Mm, right? Oh. It's a huge, huge question, and a lot of teachers accept late work. A lot of teachers don't accept late work. Mm-hmm. A lot of teachers who don't want to accept late work are compelled to do so by their administration, mm, and then that's are. where you get some, some real uh, um, tension. Um, and my question always for the teachers um, when they're trying to decide whether or not to accept late work is, what are the criteria by which you're arriving at your grades? Like this mm-hmm. comes back to this intentionality conversation yeah. again, right? If you want to measure at a proficiency model students' mastery of a particular skill, well, does it matter when they demonstrate their mastery of this skill? Like mm-hmm. if I can show you on week one that I master that skill as opposed to week 10 or three weeks after the end of the semester, well, hey, I still mastered that skill, so where's mm-hmm. my grade at? Mm-hmm. If I want to show, if I'm measuring growth and a student has to give you some like uh, evidence in order for you to determine whether they grew or not, then you perhaps need to wait until you get that evidence. Now, if you don't accept late work, it seems to me what you're grading in some part is punctuality mm-hmm. or ability to follow directions. And that's not invalid. It's part of the hidden curriculum of college and career ready is yeah. can you get your assignments done on time? That's well, right. and just to chime in on that, I mean, a lot of studies have shown that GPA is the number one predictor of college success mm-hmm. in part, not just because of the academic, but because those skills right. that mm-hmm. are embedded within grades, are you at school? Are you actually doing the assignments? Yeah. yeah. And so while I understand it can be extremely frustrating to prepare makeup packets or to grade them all when it's the your your grades are due and you have to go through a whole packet of student makeup work or to go back and change a grade after you've already entered in, into whatever system you have. For me, the question about whether or not to accept late work is what are you trying to measure and put a grade on? No, I, I think that's an absolutely excellent point. And that's, one, once again, a subtle way yeah. that you're grading influences your practice and the structure of your classroom. No, I, yeah, I think that's incredibly helpful to think about. So we've kind of had this wide-ranging discussion. Um, so, like, going forward, how do we think about all these things and, like, then determine the criteria for grading? Uh, how do we work through that process? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like... like as I said at the, the top of the, the pod, um, I was kind of worried about stepping on this by, by, by leading with it, but it's this idea that students, or teachers need to make well-reasoned professional decisions based on certain criteria, based on a philosophy of education, essentially. Mm-hmm. And grading policy is one of those things. And if a teacher sort of hand waves grades through to say like, ah, it kind of feels like a C, mm-hmm. Um, then the grade is almost lacking in validity, mm-hmm. right? Like, I don't know what a C means. And I, as a student, mm-hmm. I, as a parent, I, as an administrator, I, as a university admissions officer, I, as an employer, yeah. what does that mean, that C that you're just kind of throwing out there into the world? Um, and if you're going to arbitrarily 
tack numbers or letters onto a student's permanent record, um, then there needs to be there needs to be some there there on the part of uh, how the teacher is making the choices. Uh, otherwise, you can like truly harm a student's ability to get into colleges or get jobs. Like it can curtail their opportunities. Yeah, and so I think that's a really good summation of kind of the points that we've made that the way that grades can harm students if they're not intentional. But I mean, what about the flip side of that? Is there value in investing in this grading practice? <laughs> You're about to say something. I'm so about to, to burst. <laughs> <laughs> um, the value here is, um, particularly when you um, when it is deliberate and it is intentional, is you actually give the students the gift of feedback and feedback just takes on such this this thing in our society because it's either positive feedback or constructive feedback mm-hmm. or it was you know up oh, but if it's negative feedback is right it's criticism mm-hmm. but the reality is is it's just feedback and mm-hmm. students make their choices accordingly and sometimes we over coddle students and we over scaffold things and then they become crutches mm-hmm. because we are so afraid of our own um, interaction with failure and the reality is, is failure is super, super useful. You learn the most from whenever you fail. Mm. Sometimes the bigger the fail, the better, mm-hmm. um, because you learn the most. And then sometimes your pride just jumps in and then you're willing to do whatever it takes to never experience that failure again, but you've learned something. And I think we've taken away some of that for our students. And so if we're able to figure out what our relationship to feedback is and we get ourselves together, then we give the students this gift. And then students can then start to make these really, really um, important decisions. And I love the fact that you made a point about like getting into college. And sometimes we talk about college and career ready, almost as if students who take a gap year or who jump into careers aren't. But sometimes grades make them afraid. Mm -hmm. And so they're not brave enough to try Mm -hmm. careers that they may have to stretch a little bit more for because of some grades that they received. And so the intentionality around the grading becomes super critical because you're helping these students really self-actualize. And so um, feedback, it's just feedback, folks, and that's the value. Yeah, well, and I think something that's like implicit in what you're saying too is that not all feedback has to be punitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you're thinking about your grading, like you can have assignments that students struggle with but you can set your grade book up in such a way that it doesn't completely curtail their success for the rest of the grade or mm-hmm. the rest of the semester and they can see that growth. And I think that's another reason why it's so important for a teacher to think about their grading practice because you do need to get feedback from them on what they've learned. Then you need to give feedback on their learning and you need to create this cycle yeah. mm-hmm. where you're developing both as a teacher and you're developing your students. Um, yeah, I think you put it beautifully. Um, but we are getting low on time. We've talked about a lot of things. Are there any final thoughts that we have and we want to share? Um, my, main, my main one is that planning matters. Mm-hmm. And that just as surely as teachers should have a curriculum map and should have unit plans on, and then get down to the lesson plans, having a long-range plan for grading and putting that in place from the start of the year Um, really will save you a huge headache later. If you're planning lessons on the fly, it's the same as trying to make up grading policy on the fly. It's added work, it's added stress, it's added drama for you in the form of making decisions, talking to students, talking to parents, talking to admin. 
to the extent that teachers can set a, a well-designed grading policy in place from the start, then it's just simply going to make life easier going forward. Yeah, and my final thought is how are you grading for failure in your classroom? Mm -hmm. Because if your grade book is set up such that students are um, penalized for failing, they're going to avoid it at all costs. Mm -hmm. And so if you create a culture in your classroom where there is room for failure, yeah. even if you're not grading it, that students understand, like, I'm not afraid of whatever mm -hmm. score it is because it's not speaking to me as a failure, then you're going to have um, a very different level of interaction in your classroom, and you're going to have students stretching in ways that, to, that this just basically is going to surprise you. And so then you're able to really step into who you're meant to be at the front of the... Well, as an educator. I'm not going to say the front of the room. That's a whole different podcast. <laughs> um, but you're going to be able to stretch as an educator because failure is just going to change the conversation in your classroom because feedback is just feedback. Um, so the last thought that I want to have is we're, we're trying to push educators to think about their grading. Um, and we often have these conceptions of an A is a 90 to 100%. B is 80 to 89, so on and so forth. But, but why is that the case? Um, and so this is going to get a little wonky, so please stay with me. But the ACT, right, this huge national test for college admittance, says that the average score on the English section currently is a 20.5 or a 21. Mm -hmm. To get that score on the English test, you only need to answer 64% of the 75 questions correctly. So in a traditional grading scale, that's a D. Right. But if you think of proficient as a C or a B, right, well, then wouldn't a C or a B be lower? In the, in the math section, the average is a 20. But to get a 20 on that section, you only have to answer 21 out of 40 questions correctly mm -hmm. to be proficient, which is just barely over 50%. SAT is no different. The average score is a 510. And to get that 510 on either section, depending on the variability of the test, you only need to answer 23 to 27 out of 58 questions correctly. Or in other words, 47% of the questions or less deems you quote-unquote average. Mm -hmm. So when we're constructing our grade books, why are we using 90 to 100 as an A, uh, 80 to 89 as a B? Because if we go all the way down, that means 0 to 59% is failing. Your child in that class has a 59% chance of receiving a failing grade. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Inherently, there's something wrong with that if we're thinking about our classrooms as places of learning. Um, and I don't have the answer to that, but I think this is something that teachers have to probe themselves to think. Um, so that's it. That's our final thoughts. Thank you so much for making it to the end of the conversation. Um, please, if you want to check out the show notes, just go to our website at cpet.tc.columbia.edu, um, and we'll be back uh, with you next week. So for Brian, Denise, and myself, bye. Thanks, y'all. Bye.